There is one key experience that still shapes me today, and it was when I was cycling across the California to Nevada border, coming down the Sierra Nevada mountains, that it really just hit me. You know, what I want to do in life is to serve other people. I want to make the world a better place. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome to this episode of Seeking Satya podcast. My guest today is Dr. Shrikant Sola. He's the founder and CEO of Devik Earth, a Bangalore-based green tech company out to destroy pollution on this planet. You can find more about his venture at devik-earth.com. Shrikant was a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic before moving to India and joining the Sri Satyasai Institute of Higher Medical Sciences, Bangalore. As a practicing cardiologist, he was stunned by the high morbidity and mortality due to air pollution. He began evaluating and developing technologies to improve air quality. After many successes and failures, which we'll get into in our conversation today, he developed a pulse radio wave technology that was inspired by the cardiac ultrasound that he performed on a daily basis. This technology was highly successful and it compelled him to leave the full-time practice of medicine to make it available to society on a wider basis. Shrikant has been named Who is Who in America, Who is Who in Science and Engineering, and one of America's best cardiologists by the Consumers Research Council. He has authored 50 research publications in peer-reviewed journals and numerous book chapters, and serves on the editorial board of several international research journals in cardiology. Shrikant, welcome to the show. Thanks, Madhav. It's a pleasure to be here. Very excited to uh, dig in. I have a lot of things I wanted to talk to you about, uh, really you cycled 3,000 miles across the United States yes. <laughs> in your teen years. Uh, why? Like, what is the motivation for that? Yes, that was a wonderful trip. You know, I had my first year of college at Stanford when I was an undergraduate in those days, and I'm sure it's still the same now. This was in 1989, 1990. Uh, we were supposed to do something. You know, we were supposed to do something useful with our summer holidays. And the only things that really were available to me was back home in uh, Eastern Kentucky, where I grew up, where my family well, lived at that time, was work with some of the petrochemical industries um, that did oil and uh, gas processing in that area. That was not so interesting to me. I was a biology major at the time, and this didn't really fit. So I was looking at what would make a difference. And this is sort of a recurring theme in my life. And one of my uh, seniors had actually done this trip called Bike Aid uh, the year before, and she told me about it. And she loves cycling. I love cycling. And so it just was a natural fit. And, you know, you're cycling about uh, 80, 90 kilom- uh, about 80, 90 miles per day and across beautiful countryside going from San Francisco to D.C. Uh, you just learn a lot. You know, you have a lot of time to yourself. You're on the saddle. You're mm-hmm. meeting wonderful people. Um, you're seeing beautiful scenery. You have friends, uh, make good friendships with the people you're riding with. It's a wonderful time. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so fun, uh, actually, just all the yes, way from... Yes, and I had a great pair of legs at the end, <laughs> I should tell you. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, there was a lot of lessons. Any particular lessons that uh, come to your mind in that journey? There is one key experience that still shapes me today, and it was when I was cycling across the California to Nevada border, coming down the Sierra Nevada mountains. And we had really worked hard in the Sierra Nevadas. You know, the mountains of California are very beautiful. And uh, we got to see lovely waterfalls and snows and all sorts of wildlife. And then you cross over into the more dry, arid parts of Nevada. And on the cycle, we're going literally straight 
downhill, sometimes for miles and miles altogether. And it was on one of these long downhill descents that it really just hit me. You know, what I want to do in life is to serve other people. I want to make the world a better place. It's not that I'm going to save the world. It's not like that, not some kind of messiah complex. But I understood that, you know, gosh, what brings me happiness is making other people happy. Not in a not in a in the sense of trying to please others. It's not like that. But more the sense that man, you know, when you feed a hungry person, when you make a sick person well again, when you make a a child laugh, wow, that's something that's so precious. And that's what I learned from that trip. That's what I took away from that trip. And it still stays with me even today. Well, um, and you were like 18 at the time? Yeah, I was just 18. <laughs> I was a kid. <laughs> um, like at 18, you were, what, what kind of um, background you had before that? I'm surprised that you had a thought of serving others and um, yeah. well, most of the folks we, I know are very self-centered. Yes. <laughs> You know, my family and I, we moved from India to the United States when I was uh, age five. This was in the uh, mid-1970s. In fact, the very first movie we saw in the United States was Star Wars, the, you know, the first one that came out. And uh, we were at a time where um, the American Indian culture was not so established in the U.S. like it is today. And so my parents, my father was a doctor. He was um, working his way through the medical profession, getting himself established. Um, they were trying to figure out how to blend the Indian culture that they grew up with, with the American culture that we were introduced to. And they did a good job. I mean, they really did a good job. And it's really thanks to my parents, I think that a lot of these values uh, came to me. Along with that, I would say my teachers, you know, growing up in rural Kentucky, um, a place where there is a lot of poverty, even today, many decades later, um, I saw the value of education, I saw the value of healthcare, I saw the value of, of bringing resources to people where they may not have had it. I saw it firsthand because I saw poverty uh, every day growing up in those lovely mountains, but I also saw the beauty of nature. And those things stay with you. You know, when you yeah. see it at a young yeah. age, they stay with you. So I, when I, yeah. yeah, when I went to Stanford, I had all these amazing resources. My classmates were, um, some of them were Olympic champions. Uh, my junior was uh, Tiger Woods. Mm. Um, you know, we used to joke with him about golf. And, you know, one time one of my friends said, you know, how did you get a ticket to the Masters? You know, for spring break, we were all talking about what we were going to do during spring break. He said, dude, how did you get a ticket to the Masters? And his reply was, dude, I'm playing in the Masters. <laughs> <laughs> so we grew up with superstars like that, and it rubs off. And, and I'd already done very well academically, but this really set the stage for a growth tra trajectory that has been there, I think, my whole life. We're always trying to exceed, always trying to be better every day um and those lessons have have stayed with me uh, throughout yeah yeah uh, having uh, accessible i guess role models of some sort or peer group mm -hmm. i think um, exactly like, great teachers and great peers it made the difference youth transforms youth right yeah. and when you're around such people it makes all the difference uh Shikam, we won't probably have a lot of time to dig into your doc professional career as a doctor but um maybe for part two I wanted to ask you about a quote you shared. Uh, you can fact check me on this because not everything on the internet is true. 
you are quoted as saying the major cause of all illness is a diseased mind. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, when I would go into the intensive care unit, the CCU, and with my junior residents the, or the cardiology fellows who I was training, uh, the classic case is you have a young guy, let's say in his 30s or early 40s, a smoker who comes in with the heart attack. No other risk factors for heart disease, no diabetes, no high blood pressure, no family history, none of those things. His weight is fine. And the reason for the heart attack, the most common risk factor in these settings is smoking, tobacco use. And I would tell them, I would tell my residents, I said, you're going to counsel him about tobacco cessation, right? And they saw, said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. We've asked the counselor to come. We've also spoken to him to stop smoking. Uh, we've also written it in his discharge summary. I said, well, that's very good. What's the um, reoccurrence rate of tobacco after a heart attack? And they said, sir, 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 it's 50% of smokers will resume smoking within one year after a heart attack. I said, well, doesn't sound like your work is very successful. What's the real cause of smoking? And they said, well, you know, they sort of mumbled a few different answers, maybe exposure, maybe easy accessibility, um, maybe bad uh, images in the media and so forth. I said, no, I said, all those may contribute, but the real cause of smoking is a lack of self-love. And they just sort of laughed. They said, how can that be a medical reason for smoking use? I said, just ask the patient. Uh, Ask the patient, does he love themselves? Does he love himself? So one of the doctors did. And you know the patient's response? The patient said, sir, how can I love myself? I'm not a good person. And you see the way that it works out, right? A simple habit, a simple belief becomes a habit. And that habit leads to a disease. And that's where our mindset, our thoughts, our beliefs, the images that we create are creating our reality every single day. Most of us just ignore it and we just go on living life the way that we think it should, but we never really stop to think, what are we thinking? What are we feeling? Can we filter out the nonstop talk that goes on in our mind that we may have picked up from any uh, number of sources? And when we filter that out and when we replace it with thoughts of love, of peace, of beauty, well, guess what? That's what you create in your life. And that's yeah. what I have learned through, through medicine. And that's what I try to teach uh, to the residents at a very basic level. I have to geek out on this a little bit more. Is it really possible to fix this? Fix this See, um, belief that you have? Is we it- cannot change other people. We can't, no matter how, how hard we try. We cannot change other people. We can inspire people, though. And so that's what I would do. You know, I had one guy, I'll tell you, um, he came to me in the outpatient department in clinic. He was, his skin was gray. He was one of these guys where we see them as a cardiologist and we know that he had heart failure. His heart was very weak, it wasn't pumping well. And I, when the cardiologist sees someone like this, we know that they have a few months left to live and his condition was beyond a repair. So I gave him my usual spiel, take these medicines, eat less salt, drink less water, not more than one and a half liter per day, et cetera, the usual things, do so much exercise. But then I gave him my, my inner spiel about how we're creating our experiences all the time through our thoughts, our images, and our beliefs. And then he went away and I went on to the next patient. A year later, someone taps me in the waiting area of the OPD in the clinic and says, Doc, remember me? 
And there is this same guy, healthy, pink looking, and his heart function is more than doubled from where it was last year. I said, how did this happen? <laughs> he said, doc, I followed everything you told me to, instead of just, in, and including working on loving myself. And, you know, because of that self-love, he was compliant with his medicines, he was following his diet restrictions, he took all his exercises seriously, but it changed the inner mindset, the inner, um, probably that higher part of himself that allowed him to recover, which probably would not have been possible otherwise. Mm. Does the belief come first or the habit comes first? The belief always comes first. The mm. thoughts, the images, the beliefs that we have, this is what creates our experiences on an everyday basis. But most of us think it comes the other way. But that's just foolishness. You really have to dig deeper. It's our thoughts, our beliefs, our images. And so that's why, you know, for the transition from, let's say, medicine to green technology was, was not easy, but it was easier because I knew the, you know, I had the positive mindset to, to make it work. Yeah. Actually, that's a nice segue, uh, switching gears a little bit into, you made a gutsy move from the United States to India, mm -hmm. leaving behind prestige and comforts and a big paycheck. Mm -hmm. like, how did you arrive at that decision? <laughs> that doesn't sound very easy to do and you dropped everything and just moved. Yes, so going back to my uh, long downhill cycle ride from the age of 18, I knew that what I wanted to do was to serve society. And the work that I did at the Cleveland Clinic was just awesome. Um, not only you know, was the patient care a whole stratosphere above any of the other institutions I had seen or had been to before, we had tremendous opportunities there. I was working with the likes of GE Healthcare, Siemens, St. Jude's, Boston Scientific, all the big healthcare companies. We were developing new technologies. Some of the products that I worked on are now in use in hundreds of thousands of patients across the world on a yearly basis. And I really learned a lot about how to do high-end um, research about high-end biomedical engineering research. But I knew all along that what I wanted to do was to serve the people who are most in need. You know, the technology that I was creating was beyond the reach of the average person in say developing countries. And that was what spurred me on to come back to India. And I came back because I wanted to serve the country, but I wanted to be in a place where I didn't have to do it with my hands tied behind my back. And really one of the best charity hospitals probably in the world is the Sri Satisai Institute of Higher Medical Sciences. They have two flagship hospitals in, in South India and they're equipped with the latest and best technologies. The people there are great. The philosophy is, is wonderful. It really jives with what I was uh, doing, wanted to do. And it was a great place to come and, and settle down. And that's where I saw cardiology from a totally different perspective, because, you know, in the US, we grew up a little bit sheltered. But when I came to India, you know, as a doctor, we read about all these strange diseases that you see only in textbooks. But there, uh, I saw it all it was right in front of me and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and it, that really, you know, my clinical skills just shot up like anything. I mean, I was already a good doctor, but really became a, a superb physician just from that exposure. Oh. Did you have any fight factor at all in this move to a new, well, it's not completely new place or country, but it's still haven't lived in uh, India for a while at the time. Did you mm -hmm. have fear or uncertainty or doubt? You know, what was different is that in the U.S., it's a very flat uh, management system 
right? Uh, you know, you go and call your chief of cardiology by his first name, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. In India, in all hospitals, it's a very hierarchical system. And that's just the culture. And that took some time to get used to. You know, one of the things that we have to realize is that when you have an A player, you know, as someone who's a superstar achiever, you just leave them alone. You know, they want to do what they want to do because they do it well. And that's part of what made them so capable. Uh, and, you know, it was strange to be in a system where, um, or a culture rather, and not just that hospital, but every hospital where it was such a hierarchy. And that took some time to get used to because I was used to doing what I wanted to do, but which was always aligned with the best interest of the institution and, and of course the patients that we were serving. That took some time. I think the other thing that really surprised me was my first week. You know, in the US we had this, um, this saying for Indians who just arrived from India into America for the first time, they're called FOBs, which means fresh off the boat. Yeah, so I was an FOB, but the other way, coming from America to <laughs> India. And I still remember my first week, I saw this young guy. He was hardly 28 years old. He was just shoe cobbler on the street. You know, those people, if you've been to India, they they have this little stall on the side of the road and they repair sandals and footwear and stuff. And they hardly make about... 300 rupees a day that's like six or seven dollars or something and uh, this guy had a big heart attack and he was brought to our hospital and there was no way that he could pay for an expensive angioplasty operation on his own but we did his angioplasty operation for free and he ended up walking out of the hospital and it was such a wonderful experience but i also saw well the reason he had his heart attack was because he was exposed to air pollution all day long. He was working on the street, breathing in vehicle fumes day after day. So I was like, oh, well, this is, you know, what I had read about, you know, when the World Health Organization talks about so many millions of people, now 7 million people a year dying from air pollution. I was like, well, this is one of the lucky ones who who made it. I was feeling proud of myself, obviously, that we had saved him. But then a week later, actually, even a few days later, another young fellow, this time 32 years of age, a taxi driver comes in, and he also had a heart attack from the same thing, exposure to air pollution, no, none of the usual risk factors, no smoking, etc. We did his angioplasty operation, and he died right in front of me. And that really hit me hard. Of course, I had to go and explain to the family that, you know, we tried our best, but unfortunately we couldn't save him. And, you know, this is something that no physician likes to do, but we all unfortunately have that responsibility. And it started this journey of looking at, well, shoot, you know, there's only so many angioplasties that we can do per day, right? I mean, we can kill ourselves and see so many patients per day. It's still a drop in the ocean because these environmental factors and other factors, whether it's nutrition or pollution or whatever, are literally wrecking havoc and actually can be fixed. The problem is that air pollution is not so easily fixed. And that's started me on a mission of looking at, well, what kind of technology solutions can we provide to bring cleaner air to large groups of people beyond just the usual HEPA filters that are only useful for indoor spaces? And that's how the, the background for David Earth started. Just to wrap up on the idea of sort of listening to your inner self, I guess, when you mm-hmm. made the move, and it's, I'm sure many of your colleagues or friends or family might have had other opinions on you know, such a big move. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and how do you... How do you develop that conviction 
in your own ideas and uh, sort of tune out the external noise. Sure, sure. So this happened to me twice, right? The first time when I moved from the US to India to mm -hmm. work at a charitable hospital. And the second time when I moved out of cardiology to, to begin my own startup. So I've gone through this two times. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think it starts with that conviction, that feeling of what you're doing is, is right for you and is right for your family and is right for society, for the bigger picture. And I think that when those three things click together, um, it made sense. I remember having a conversation when I was still in Cleveland, some of the doctors, one of the doctors was telling me, said, you know, how are you gonna work there? You're used to all this high-end technology and how are you going to adjust um, being in a third world country, you know, I explained to him how, how we had all the latest, you know, technology, the same equipment that we had, they have, et cetera, et cetera. And a year or two later, he called me saying, you know, I've heard about the amazing work you guys are doing there. I also heard about the amazing clinical experience that, um, that the trainees receive there. I said, can we send our Cleveland Clinic fellows to you to, for training <laughs> for a rotation of one or two months? I said, sure. So things, you know, they come around, they see the way. My parents, when uh, they're from the US, they, they are, sorry, still living in the US. And when they came from the US to visit us in Bangalore, they also had those same doubts. So once they came to the Satisai Hospital, they saw the incredible ambiance. They saw the happiness of the patients and the people working there, the healthcare workers there, that that did it for them. And they were convinced that this is the right, right way. So again, it starts from what's right for you, what's right for your family, and what's right for society. You had mentioned um, happiness in people's faces a couple of times already. And I'm curious, like, is that one of the motivations that um, provides the drive for you? Like, Definitely. Is, right. I mean, it is Definitely. Very, when you look at it in one angle, it's like you're impacting one person or a handful of people, but not necessarily scaling it to millions or billions. Mm -hmm. But there is something in it, I think, yes. that I'm hearing from you. What, what is that? For that one person, you may help just one person, but for that one person, it makes all the difference. You know, I've so many times I've had patients come back for their follow-up visits after surgery or treatment or whatever, and they ask, you know, let's say it's a mother of a young child and we've operated on the child. And I, the mother asks questions about diet and can they play and all those things. And I tell them, uh, ma'am, your son or daughter is now completely normal. They can have a normal life. And the shock of, of this when they see this, you know, the happiness that they see, that I see on their face, that's priceless. You know, that's just, uh, that is real beauty. You know, that is real beauty actually. And now with our green technology company, we use the same philosophy. See, when I was at Satisai Hospital, it was about serving the patients. Now as a business owner, as a small business owner with a startup, a green tech company, it's about serving our customers. But when I was, in healthcare, the most beautiful moments were when our patients would come to us and say, as they were leaving, God bless you and God bless your family. They would say this. And what I tell our employees is that we should bring such clean air to millions of people that they say to you, God bless everyone at Davik Earth. We can breathe clean air again. And that's, that's really, you know, that's an earning. That's an income that is beyond measure. Wonderful. That's actually a beautiful, like a segue into 
the second segment of um, our conversation, which is Devik Earth, which is your current um, um, startup. And um, can you describe to a six-year-old what is it that you do at Devik Earth? Sure, sure. So what we do is we bring clean air over large areas. And we've been doing this for about 12, 13 years now. The company has been in place for about three years and we have about 40, 50 installations across India. India, unfortunately, is the most polluted country in the world. And uh, we do very well. We're able to clean up large areas by a very simple technology, um, basically applying small electrical charges through antennas uh, to provide pulsed radio energy, which allows pollution to be cleared at a much more rapid rate. What happens in nature, suppose you don't uh, dust your desk for a few days, or you don't wash your car for a week, you'll see a layer of dust on yep. top, right? Yeah, that's just the normal uh, collision of dust particles together, and then they settle out. That's how nature cleans up most of the pollution in the atmosphere, at least most of the dust. What we're seeing is a visible dust, but there's also a lot of microscopic pollutants that also settle down. What we do is we just speed up that process using pulsed radio energy. And these particles have charged sides on them, plus and negative charges. And when they're exposed to certain types of pulsed radio energy, we use Wi-Fi only, the same kind of Wi-Fi that comes from your router at home. Uh, they just speed up how quickly they move and they collide a little bit faster and they settle down a little bit faster, but it only works on microscopic particles. So you don't get, get a layer of dust whenever our systems are in place. And we link these together, just like imagine, you know, when you're an airport or a big hotel or something, we link these together in a network to be able to cover large areas. Our biggest installation is about 750 acres. Well, that's massive. Um, actually, when I moved from uh, when we moved as a family from Boston to India, one of the stark uh, differences I used to notice was that I, I would clean the desk or the TV screen or the laptop screen, and then within an hour or two, it's all back to dust. Mm -hmm. And I had never done that. Even the car, for example, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. I would clean the yes. car and wash it with water and whatnot, and within a day, it's all back to normal, like fully covered with dust. Part, part of that is geographical. Countries in South Asia have soil characteristics mm -hmm. that cause the, so the soil top layer to be dispersed very easily and when the wind blows. And that creates these dust particles that we then see in uh, these areas. So it's common. Um, that's just nature and there's really nothing we can do about it. But then what's happening is that rapid urbanization and industrialization, increasing population and so forth is accelerating the amount of dust particles, what we call pollutants into the atmosphere. And that of course affects everybody. I think nine out of 10 people across the world, according to the World Health Organization, breathes air that is not fit for breathing. So it's not just the developed countries. Think about what happened across the Western United States in during the uh, storms, right? In the uh, brush fires, sorry, the wildfires last year, right? Large areas go extending all the way to New York on the other side were affected by poor air quality. So it's a worldwide phenomenon, unfortunately. Got it. Yep. And is um, the product that you talked about, you said that sort of takes away that dust? 
it well what we do again is we're, we're accelerating what is happening naturally so we don't have a purifier we don't use fans the units look like big wi-fi routers mm -hmm. um, earlier we had our antennas on top of the box uh, the cabinet but then when we did st some installations in varanasi varanasi is a famous temple town in india um, the monkeys there are really aggressive <laughs> and we figured out that they're just going to pull the antennas right off of our yep. boxes <laughs> so now everything is contained inside this is part of the product development so to speak uh, thanks to these monkeys um, but yeah they're boxes the size of microwave ovens or bigger depending on whether they're for indoor or outdoor use and they just send out pulsed radio energy again just like wi-fi but in a way that doesn't interfere with your home Wi-Fi or office Wi-Fi signals. And because the energy is so weak, it's only able to affect the microscopic stuff. So you don't see dust on the ground. The dust will settle to the ground. The PM10 and PM2.5, which are types of microscopic air pollutants, will settle down to the ground. But they're in such low concentrations that they don't accumulate to a significant amount. Got it. Um, is the Devik are the product of your inner voice or is it a customer voice? You know, I'd like to think it was inspired by those two patients of mine and I'm really indebted to them. But what I find, you know, people ask me, how did you innovate this? And how did you come up with this idea? Because people have in the startup space, we're always talking about innovation. You know, that's, it's what we do. We make new things that are going to disrupt the world that are going to reinvent the world. And what I realized that if we're going to reinvent the world, then we have to reinvent ourselves first. Mm -hmm. And for me, that comes from inside, not from outside. And so yes, that the inspiration did come from inside, from the inner voice. And so that's made it a bit challenging because we actually did uh, we actually started with the, almost the finished product. Of course, there are a lot of successes and failures along the way, but we started with that product and then we had to work backwards to figure out how does it work. <laughs> and now, fortunately, we have really um, awesome people working with us. We've, we're hiring a bunch of PhDs. We're doing a great project with the Indian Institute of Technology in uh, Kanpur, one of India's uh, one of India's most prestigious uh, academic institutions. And uh, we have a lot of work on this. Um, but it did start from that inside. And, and what I tell people is that you know innovation is actually something that comes from within when we are quiet, when we are silent inside, that gives us the space to connect with that higher part of ourselves. You can call it higher self, the higher soul, the higher consciousness, whatever you want, it doesn't matter. Take it as far as you want. But when we're silent inside, we're able to access that better part of ourselves. And I think, I believe that's where those answers come from. And I really feel that the answer to every problem, every um, difficulty, every challenge that we're facing, whether it's in society or our personal lives, is found inside. It's found there. And that's where you'll get those answers. Not outside, not through technology, not through apps, but it's found inside. So how do you reinvent yourself? Because you said to invent something outside, you have to first invent something inside, I guess, in some yes. sense. Yes. What in particular that you had to reinvent in, within yourself? Do you have anything specific to share? So, you know, when we were coming up with uh, the Pure Skies technology, we were looking at a lot of different 
technologies that were available when we started this project in 2008. Um, we looked at HEPA filters or metallic filters. We look at ionization type devices. And eventually, you know, Pure Skies works similar to ionization, which has been around for decades in uh, a type of air pollution control equipment called um, electrostatic precipitators or ESPs. Every heavy industry uses them. And we sort of do the same thing, but with a totally different approach. So what we were doing is basically saying, well, this is there, this is there, this is the current technology. How can we make it better, right? Mm -hmm. Can we make an incremental difference? That's what we were looking at. But then what we realized is that all of these were very limited. The current approaches to improving air quality and getting rid of pollution we're very limited because they all cover just a small area, but how do we make something that will affect hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in a beneficial way while being safe and economical at the same time? That was the question we had. And so we went through a lot of iterations and it required a lot of patience. Um, it required this feeling that it's okay to fail. And this was a big, difficulty I had, you know, because as a cardiologist, if you fail on a patient, man, that's not good. There's no tolerance for failure, actually, in medicine, really, yeah. we don't have that tolerance for failure. But when it comes to inventing something new, we I had to actually bring that out of myself, which I never had before. I was used to getting things right the first time I was used to doing things superbly with excellence. And now here I was having to be patient and try things and know that nine out of 10 times, it might not work. And that was a new learning for me that I had to had to really, I'm still learning it actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that's a yeah, beautiful um, way to say it, like you have to first invent or reinvent yourself before you can invent something outside. I, that's a wonderful perspective. So you had this brilliant idea based on your experience doing this on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, but then how did you act on this brilliant idea? What happened next? What was your minimum viable product? Like, right, you, right. Like, uh, yes, you know, in cardiology, we use ultrasound. Uh, we call it uh, echocardiography of the heart. And we use um, ultrasound energy, the same ultrasound energy that we use when we do scans of uh, pregnant women to check the baby's mm -hmm. health. And uh, when we send that energy continuously, we create one effect. When we send it in pulsed manner, we create another effect. Well, in addition to cardiac ultrasound or echo, I was also doing uh, cardiac MRI, MRI scans of the heart. And MRI scans is just pulsed radio waves. It's just pulsed radio energy. And you have an antenna which transmits that radio energy into the body, and then it receives the signals that come back as well. So it's a transmitting and receiving antenna. And when we pulse that radio energy in different ways, we can create different effects. It occurred to me that, you know what, radio energy is really about the only thing that can act at a distance, right? See, if you look at the whole planet, there are only a couple of forces that are actually active, right? You have gravity, you have electromagnetic energy, you have electrostatic energy and a few others. And electromagnetic energy is the one that can work at a distance. And this is what I was looking for. I wanted to be able to improve air quality over a distance. And that's how I came upon the idea. What if we pulse these radio waves? Because anyway, these are all charged particles. We can take advantage of their charge and then make them do what we want. And that's, that's how the inspiration came. Um, it's easy to say it took years of effort to bring that into a form that was reliable, that was easily reproducible, that would work in different environments and so forth. But we were fortunate. I think 
just as much as the person, you know, the team that I had built up with me, the people who helped me were important, as well as was the environment I was working at Satisai Hospital. It's a non-commercial charitable hospital. So I didn't have the pressures to go out and say, see lots of patients and earn revenue for the hospital and so forth. That wasn't there. As long as I was taking care of the patients and providing them with world-class quality care, that was always the first priority. And we were encouraged to do research as long as it would benefit society. That was the key criterion. And so I had the space, I had the ability, I had the time, and pretty soon I had the funding. I got research funding from the Ministry of Environment and Forest and other organizations. And then fast forward 10 years, when I saw that this technology was benefiting people, not only in terms of, of cleaning up the air for 10 kilometers around the hospital, um, but also when our system was on, there was a measurable reduction in the number of people who lived within that area benefited by our technology with cleaner air. People who were coming to the hospital with heart attacks, with strokes, with asthma exacerbations, they all came down by as much as a third. And that was when it struck me, man, I put myself all day <laughs> just trying to prevent a fraction of this, or I can put these systems up and literally benefit millions of people every single day. And that's when Vavik Earth was born. Mm. You'd mentioned something that sort of has been popularized by Elon Musk and others. Actually, a couple of things. One is around the first principles thinking. Obviously, you saw a bunch of solutions, but you were not happy with it. So you had to reinvent mm -hmm. and think completely out of the box. Wanted to touch on that and see if you had anything specific that you want to share around first principles thinking. And the second thing was around failures and how you were not really used to that as a cardiologist. I would not <laughs> want to be operated by someone who wants to experiment on me. Yes, but, exactly. Uh, but uh, I recall uh, Jeff Bezos talking about if you want to fail, Amazon is the best company to come work for. Like that failure and learning culture. Like, yes, yes. So those two aspects, could you share a little bit more around like first principles thinking and uh, experimentation and failure as part of... Right, growing? right. So my inspiration in this was actually Thomas Edison, hmm. right? He, um, although he's widely credited with creating the first light bulb, it was actually the form of, of wire that he created um, that was so successful. And when he had done this so many hundreds of times, um, people asked him how it was. And he said, well, what I learned was uh, some 200 odd ways of how not to create um, the incandescent bulb. And uh, that was what sort of kept me going. I said, I know that uh, I can see the result. I could actually see, visualize the end result in my you know, inner self. I could actually, I knew it was there and it was just a matter of time. And, and what happened is, uh, you, I think the problem with first principled thinking is it's coming from the mind. And the mind, as you know, is actually a monkey mind. It doesn't mm -hmm. sit still. And so when you talk about first principle thinking, you're actually limiting yourself to what the mind can do. But when you can act from that higher part of yourself, then there's no limits to what you can create. Really, there's no limits. You know, we have taken our technology, for example, and we have adapted it, adapted it to water purification, not in not for drinking water, but rather for lakes and rivers. And in 
not just the developing world, but around the world, our water bodies are suffering from tremendous pollution. And we have shown that with this technology, we're able to bring down certain types of pollutants, organic pollutants by anywhere from 50 to 70% in freshwater bodies themselves, not just in the lab, but actually in real life uh, studies. That's huge, you know, that's tremendous. And, you know, the pandemic has pushed the, the, the launch of that product back a little bit, but that's okay. But that kind of, I wouldn't call it first principles thinking, I would call it that inner self approach, that higher self approach. And I think that's much more powerful. The moment you limit yourself to the level of the mind, you are being, you're going to be taken control of by the monkey mind. And that's a mad monkey. It's a mad monkey. Don't let it take control of you. <laughs> Go back into silence. Go back into that inner peace that, that you know, what I tell, you know, some of my students is the only time we have is right now. There's no past and there's no future. It's just this immediate moment. And said so in this immediate moment, sacrifice every thought, every impulse and every desire. Just get rid of it so you can stay in this now moment. And when you do that, that's when the real solutions will present themselves to you. It's a very interesting uh, perspective on listening to that inner self or inner voice and um, you recommended something around just be silent like yes what kind of practice like do you have a practice that helps you like if i'm i mean i'm xyz and i'm where i am i'm always constantly mm -hmm. looking for the next shiny object or whatever and constantly distracted just like you said mad mad monkey how does one go from that mad monkey state to actually <laughs> listening and keeping silent and listening to this higher voice and be actually convinced that this is this is the voice I should be listening to not these uh, market research reports or these <laughs> analyst reports or TechCrunch articles like right 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 you know that's that's a good question I think it takes constant effort it takes constant refinement because while our minds are very powerful our intelligence is tremendous. Human intelligence is tremendous. Human ability and potential is unparalleled. We've created more technology and so many amazing solutions in the last few decades than we've had in the last few millennia. But there is that inner part of ourselves, which we, when we tap into, gives us real power. I mean, if you look at um, the great athletes, uh, they're no first principles thinking there. Many of them are able to go into that silent part of themselves, that higher part of themselves. You'll see all of them have these routines and rituals that they do, which just help to train them better so that they can perform better. Athletes do this, great scientists do this, great musicians do it. We all do it unconsciously when we want to. Uh, the practice really is just to do it all the time, right? And when that happens, then you'll just get bombarded with new ideas, new insights, new uh, evolutions. I think touching on the second part of your question is how do you fail and fail joyfully, you know, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, one of the things that we do at David Earth is we, we try very hard not to point fingers mm -hmm. at others. You know, if there's something wrong, instead of pointing a finger, let's fix it and make it better. 
know, that takes a shift in mindset. Uh, if we fail, then we applaud those failures because we've tried. But, you know, we've learned from those failures. And I tell you, the next generation technology of our Pure Sky systems are so awesome. I mean, the way they work, just because we have failed so many, many times, but we've also been able to apply that in, in, to make our technology so much better. And it comes from that constant failure, success, relearning, improving, and uh, getting back up uh, each time you fail. Talking of uh, failures, I wanted to ask you a question later, but I'll ask now, like, is there, because so far I've, all I've heard is hunky-dory, everything is going great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I cannot imagine that's the case. Uh, is there a dark moment or things that really made you rethink or doubt yourself? On yeah. What you're doing, you know, why am I doing this kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. Many, many times, actually. See, when you form a startup, it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, you will um, suffer ignominy for some time. People that you know will wonder, why did you leave your well-paying job to join a company where you're not even getting paid for so many months or you're getting paid very little peanuts compared to what you were before? Um, there's a loss of prestige. There's a loss of status. There's a loss of salary and financial uh, benefits. Um, I was lucky because I had a very supportive family, um, although they did also doubt at times. but very much they were very very supportive and that helped tremendously but you have to be prepared for those uh, dark moments you have to be prepared for man is it really worth it you're working like uh, like uh, cats and dogs to get your company going there will always be doubters there will always be uh, naysayers and you have to learn to take those doubts and negative comments and turn it into something positive because what we do is we actually look at how we can make our product stronger. How can we improve ourselves? How can we take that negative feedback and actually use it to make ourselves better? We don't expect our company or ourselves to be perfect, but we can become better and we can become better every day. And does, so if you're thinking of joining a startup after listening to me, just wait. <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yep, absolutely. It's uh, it's a long and um, could be a pretty tiring or tedious in terms of definitely, definitely. Out, but but it's yeah. Um, does your do, do you have a practice for like meditation practice or something that helps you during? I do. For many years, I've been practicing meditation. Um, I was lucky that my grandfather was a a yogi Mm -hmm. of sorts. I mean, he was very accomplished um, in meditation. And so when I was around 18, 17, 18, I actually started learning meditation from him. And that helped me to excel not just in my personal life and personality, but also academically. You know, I've found that, um, well, shoot, if the mind is so quiet, well, I can read my books and pick up the material in half the time than my classmates did. Um, so I did really well academically, whether it was at Stanford or whether it was a medical school or residency training or cardiology fellowship training, I did really well. And it wasn't because I was smart. I mean, there are many, many students and classmates who are way smarter than me, but it's just that my mind was quiet. And when it was quiet, it was just able to absorb and understand and retain so much more. So these kind of inner practices uh, are very valuable, but perhaps because the world today has such an external focus, 
um, perhaps we've forgotten the value of these more uh, internal processes. Yeah. Is the meditation of a particular type, like if you don't mind sharing, like how much time you spend on it? When do you do it? What do you do? Mm -hmm. Is it like a chanting, a mantra? Or is sure, it a sure. So I do, uh, I just become quiet. I become silent. And I focus on that larger part of the self that actually has no boundaries. It has no limits. Um, it has no beginning and it has no end. And that part is there within all of us. You just have to look inside of you and ask, where do I begin and where do I end? What we like to think of as an iPhone-like product, but in a simple box. And what we're doing now is we're making it much more aesthetic and we're also customizing it to different uses. You know, a lot of our customers are heavy industries, factories and so forth, and they have specific requirements. Somebody wants the box to be entirely flame proof. Okay, fine, we do that and we get it certified. Somebody wants it to be resistant to sea salt spray because they're near the ocean. Okay, fine, we do that and we get it certified accordingly. Um, but what's happening now and again, this is where we look at that out-of-the-box thinking that you mentioned. Of course, the technology is going to become smaller and smaller. Of course, it's going to become effective. Of course, the research papers will be published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Of course, the patents will come out and the community will be built. All those will happen over time. But when we're looking out-of-the-box, we think, how can we get this to everybody? Okay. Now, every, all of you listening to this, you have a mobile phone. And your mobile phone has a hotspot which is actually just a Wi-Fi antenna, maybe somewhat different from the type of antennas we use, but it's still a Wi-Fi antenna. And our Pure Skies tech works on Wi-Fi. And so our long-term goal is what we call Pure Skies 3.0, uh, is to basically give you an app that you download from the store. And now you give it permission to use your phone's hotspot, and then it pulses that same Wi-Fi energy, what we use in our bigger units, but from your phone. And so now you have an air purifier in your pocket that you can carry around with. You go to school, you go to the gym, you go to office, the grocery store, you just leave it at home and it just powers. The challenge of course is to make sure that it doesn't drain all your battery uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> forth. And we're working on that. But again, this is that out of the box type of thinking that we have to look at. How can we make clean air available to everyone. Yes, we have to have on a society level, greater energy efficiency, a shift to more renewable energy. Um, we have to have tri tighter emission norms, more stringent regulations, or actually more implementation and enforcement of those regulations, including fines and penalties levied as appropriate. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we can do this in a way that reaches everybody, everyone across the planet. And that's our goal. What was your darkest moment in this journey with Devik? Uh, was there one and how mm -hmm. did you cope with that? Like Sure, sure. I think our toughest moment in the company was when unfortunately one of our employees died on the job during an accident, due to an accident. And that was really hard. Obviously, as a company, we take care of employee safety and well-being. And as a physician, you know, I'm pretty strict with even things like making sure that our employees who travel have been vaccinated against, mm -hmm. you know, whatever inf infectious agents are out there. It's not just, um, say, uh, 
coronavirus, which is you know not widely available yet in most countries, although I've been vaccinated myself. Um, there are other vaccines like flu and cholera and so forth that we do. So we really take a lot of attention, whether safety gear, safety equipment. Despite all that, there was an accident that caused this young man to lose his life. And that was hard. That's hard. You lose someone who is both an employee and a friend, and that took its toll, I think, on us. But having said that, we really, you know, I think that training as a physician kicked in. And that's where you're able to work in a crisis situation uh, completely um, at a very high level of work, but without getting bogged down by the emotional trauma of it all. It took time later to process it, but during that time we swung into action. We did whatever was necessary for him and the family. We um, did grief counseling for our team as a group. We uh, renamed our plant after the employee who had passed away. We did individual counseling sessions for anyone who requested it. Uh, we really did a lot of work to um, bring our team back together. And what we're seeing now is a few months later that our team is stronger than ever. Uh, you know, than, you know we, our team is uh, much stronger for the event. And of course, we won't forget whatever what happened. We won't forget the family of that um, boy. They're, they're, they're family. We don't even call our, our employees a team. Uh, we call our, our employees our family. And we call them our David Earth family. When someone new joins, we say, welcome to the David Earth family. And uh, we really mean it. And that was tough. That was something that no business experience can train you up for, but perhaps my cardiology experience as a physician, being able to function in high crisis situations came in handy at that time. Your specific meditation practice, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. share a little bit more around how often do you practice, when you practice, and what you practice in that sure. meditation? Sure. Well, while I do sitting uh, meditation practices twice a day, maybe overall about an hour or an hour and a half or so. What I do actually is I make my meditation process the whole day. And what I had mentioned to you earlier is just live in the present moment. So what I will do is I will just focus on the present, whatever I'm doing right now, whether it's my, my work or, or being with family or driving or whatever, and anything that's not related to that, even the impulse, even the, another desire, I will just sacrifice it. I will just get rid of it. So I'm just completely in that now moment. And, you know, in the present moment, there's so much power. There's so much energy. I don't get tired after working 10 or 11 hours a day. I don't feel fatigued because I'm not using the, the ego, that monkey mind energy to do the work. I'm just staying in that now moment. And in that now moment, everything is there. In that silence, there's such a tremendous power. And all you have to do is just stay focused completely on what you're doing now. And whatever thought, feeling, impulse, desire comes up that's unrelated to the task at hand, just sacrifice it, just get rid of it. Throw it in an imaginary fire or imaginary dustbin. I throw it into a volcano. <laughs> that works for me, whatever it is. But we all do this. We all do this actually. Look at any great musician, athlete, a surgeon, we all do this all the time. Pilot, uh, it's just that we have to become more conscious of it and bring it into our regular lives instead of just those short, compact moments when we're performing. Five yeah, in the see, morning meditation like and living in the now is 24 by 7. It's 24 by 7. Very interesting. So you are saying that multitasking is a myth. Sort of you have the Instagram updates and tweets and whatnot and you feel like you're checking your email and browsing at the same time and very feeling very productive but it's actually draining yes. the energy out of you 
Exactly. In fact, what I tell our employees, I says, don't focus on busyness. There's a there's a culture now of being busy. As long as you're active, you're doing something. I says, don't focus on that. I said, focus on outcomes. Focus on results. I said, don't give me reasons. Give me results. And that's what I want to see from my employees. And I teach them these things. I hope it it rubs off. Um, but I want to move. I want our team, our family members, to move away from being busy to focusing on the results, on the outcomes of what we're doing. And if you do that, even if you make mistakes, it works out just fine. How, how big is the family now? Yeah, we're about uh, 21 people and we're hiring. <laughs> <laughs> we are looking for, you know, A-level players who are smart and nice and easy to get along with and work hard. Uh, but we're growing. We'll probably be at around 50 or so by the end of this calendar year. What is the moonshot for Baby Kurt? Go to sleep tonight and wake up after five years. Mm -hmm. Baby Kurt is super successful. What do you think that would look like? Okay. Well, part of our R&D is looking at uh, renewable energy and looking at energy storage devices that are cheap, that can be uh, made without lithium or without higher, you know, costly uh, rare earth metals and so forth. And so what we're looking at is making these uh, types of devices cheap and easily available so that we don't have to have expensive ways of storing or transporting energy. And this is what we work on. This is what I work on every day before I go to office um, in my little lab at home. <laughs> and what I want to do is to bring this available to the world so that everybody can benefit. Energy should be cheap, it should be plentiful, it should be green, and it should be easily uh, procurable and transportable and safe. You just touched on something that I just kind of ignore. I have read Paul Graham, one of the startup guys, talk about maker schedule versus manager schedule. Like mm -hmm. you touched on tinkering in your home lab. Do you have mm -hmm. a manager schedule versus a maker schedule? Uh, so we do have certain activities, you know, as a as a CEO. We have objectives, we have our outcomes. We do AK, OKRs from John Andy Grove, you know, John of Rory. Intel fame and so mm -hmm. forth. And we love those. Uh, the main thing is uh, to delegate, right? Uh, to build the team, uh, to build a product and to keep track of the big picture while also paying attention to the details. The tiny details matter, right? And it's those tiny details that can make or break a product, especially when it's something like ours, which can often be in extreme or harsh environments. And uh, so those details do matter. But as far as how I run my day, um, Anytime I'm getting stressed, anytime I'm getting tired, anytime I'm getting nervous, I immediately stop because I know that I'm not living in the present moment. I've lost it. I've lost mm. that connection to the present moment. I just stop what I'm doing. And immediately I focus on the task at hand. And I just, just like that athlete or great musician or great surgeon, I will just sacrifice every single desire, impulse, and thought that is not related to that now moment. And then the fatigue and the stress goes away. So as an avid runner, what's the best part of running for you? The best part of running is running with my dogs. <laughs> right. yeah, Especially when they see a, a cat or a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> they go crazy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any book that you've cherished, learned a lot from, or gifted to folks? You know, right now I'm reading uh, 
a book by John Chambers, the former CEO mm, cool. of uh, Cisco, uh, called uh, "Connect the Dots," and he's like a fountain of wisdom. And I really resonate with a lot of what he says. He's a lot about um, about being ready for what's next, and that's really what we're doing at Davy Kurtz. I really resonate with what uh, John Chambers says. Super, yeah. Connecting the dots. No better person than uh, John Chambers. I had worked in networking industry in my first job for a while, competing with Cisco. So I know, <laughs> I know <laughs> John Chambers quite well. Um, what one piece of advice would you give your teenage self if you could time travel? Yeah, if I could go back, I would just say, just love yourself. Just love yourself, you know, because then it gives you permission to make mistakes. It gives you permission to not be perfect. It gives you permission to try new things that maybe I wouldn't have tried before. Maybe I would have kept up with my music or my art, um, you know. I, so just love. I would have just said, just love yourself. Who, according to you, is the most successful person in the world? The one with the least desires. And one truth you believe in that nobody else believes in? Love is everything. Love is what matters. And if you have that love, then you really are the wealthiest person in the world. Imagine a full moon and everyone in the world can see whatever is on the moon. What would you write on it or put on it? <laughs> I would write three, <laughs> three simple letters. I would write joy. joy. I would write joy. Yes, because we've forgotten what it's like to be joyous. We've forgotten what it's like. We get too serious in our lives. And when we get serious, we're no longer living. We're just merely existing. So I would put joy because when we have that joy, you know, that joy that you just get out of bed and you're so happy, you know, you just play with your dogs or laugh with your friends and family or you enjoy a good meal. It's beyond that kind of physical thing. It's just that joy that comes from your inside and just fills everything that you do. That kind of joy. Hmm. And the last question, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way they can reach you? Yeah, please reach out to me. My details are available on our website or LinkedIn. I don't uh, check Facebook, please. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I'm always available uh, to help. And I look forward to connecting with you. Awesome. I, I can't stop asking this. Uh, this question has been popping up several times in my mind. Like I see you're smiling, very unanxious. Like where does that come from? Again, it comes back from that joy. It comes back from living in the present moment just being in that now, because in that now, there's silence. In that silence, there's love. In that love, there's everything. Yes. Should leave it at that. That's beautiful. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that some parting words? That you I think Madhav, you did great. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you and it was a lot of fun and uh, really have enjoyed the opportunity. So thank you so much. Awesome, Shrikant. It was such a joy chatting with you and I wish you the best. Hopefully we'll do a part two sometime. Uh, there's so much to learn from you and um, until then, wish you the best in making a dent in the universe. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. Thank you.